The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) All right. Welcome back, my friends, to Through the Glass Columns, your very own guide to reading the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. Uh, This is your read-along podcast for Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time saga. Uh, And we are starting, of course, with book one, The Eye of the World. Uh, If you have somehow found us for the first time, I will let you know that we do have previous episodes covering the the prologue and some introductions. So you're welcome to go back and start at the top. Or hey, if you want to just pull in here, uh, we're going to be discussing uh, chapter one uh, coming right up in just a moment. So you can start there as well. As a reminder, my name is Greg. I am what is known as a novice in Wheel of Time in that I have no idea what is going on, what will go on, or what I should think about any of those types of things. Uh, And so I am fresh and exploring this uh, really fascinating uh, fantasy world with all of you as we go through. Uh, But... Who would I be if I didn't have a guide with me? And so I will introduce, of course, Tyler, our Wheel of Time expert. Hello, Tyler. Hello, Greg. Uh, I don't know whether or not expert is accurate. We will figure that out in about two or three books when I start making all of the mistakes. Uh, But for today, luckily, uh, book one, chapter one, there's not too much I can screw up so far. Uh, So we're going to begin today by talking about chapter one, An Empty Road. Um, As usual, we'll start with just a little bit of a summary. You know, if you're not reading the book along with us immediately, if it's been a little bit since you dropped into it, um, you know, this chapter starts the way that many of the books start with a wind and you know the the wheel of time turns I love this opening paragraph I'm sure we'll talk about it. Um, and we start by following uh, Randall Thor and his father Tam they're making their way from the Westwood into the town of Emmons field and Rand notices a rider who is following them it's cloak not being affected by the wind very quickly it vanishes and Tam it clearly takes Rand seriously but also dismisses it as soon as he hears that someone was following them along the road. They make their way into town. There's a number of, you know, people who are meeting at the inn and are, you know, seemingly discussing politics and the weather and a number of things that have gone on. We get to know Matt Coffin and his wonderful pranks involving flowered dogs and apparently at some point frogs. And finally, we learn that a number of exciting things are happening in town. We end up uh, learning that there is a gleeman in town, that a peddler is coming with fireworks. And briefly, at the very end, we learn that strangers are in town, leading us into what will be chapter two, uh, unsurprisingly called Strangers. So Greg, as the novice, I'm curious, this is your first kind of real chapter of the Wheel of Time. We've had prologues, but this is the first time, you know, we're kind of in the heads of characters that we'll stick with for a little while. What was your impression first, first time down the road? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. It very much felt like a cocktail party I was at. And I'm like, okay, who are you? What's your deal? Do I want to stand here and talk to you? Or do I want to go eat at the cheese tray or uh, what have you? So in that regard, uh, you know, personally, I find those chapters challenging in a lot of ways, right? Because it's a lot of names, a lot of backstory. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people get turned off on fantasy, and and this is me in a, a separate book I'm reading right now, is I get names confused really easily when you when they're not recognizable, and you don't necessarily know how to pronounce them. I totally understand people who get turned off in that. And so there's a little bit of all of that going on here. But that being said, I had a nice time, right? Um, it's kind of the comfy warm hug of fantasy to be like here's a tavern here are townspeople and some of them are just npcs and we will never <laughs> enjoy their company again uh but for now getting to know uh rand and uh matt primarily uh, and and then tam of course is, is is very prominent as well um all of that was was an enjoyable time for me and so i i think i left this chapter you know feeling not totally sure-footed but comfy like, okay, I can see I'm in capable hands that is, you know, doing this kind of heavy exposition nicely and uh, in a way that's entertaining. So, uh, yeah, I'm still, uh, they, he earned chapter two, in other words. Uh, I will keep going for now. So uh, how, uh, you know, what insights can you share about, you know, this time through the book, how it feels to return to this kind of having a much clearer picture, I'm sure, of where all of this connects and where it's all going? Yeah, I mean, there were a few things that I noticed on this read that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, just like quick character notes that I hadn't really picked up on that you eventually see kind of play out significantly further down the road. And, you know, I don't want to talk about what the implications of those will be, but there's a lot of, uh, I think Robert Jordan, uh, actually, this reminds me of something that Mike Schur talked about on the, the podcast uh, for The Good Place, when he was talking about how, like, there are, you know, kind of a bunch of different ways that storytellers can focus when they tell stories. And he mentioned like character is something that television is often really interested in, you know, doing really deep dives into what motivates someone or what caused them to be what they are. And there's also world building, which Robert Jordan obviously does so well. And then there's plot, right? And Mike Schur was like the trick on The Good Place was to just put the the pedal to the floor with regard to plot and figure all the rest of it out kind of as they went. And I feel like Robert Jordan in this chapter pulls the exact opposite trick. Like he tells you like there's a guy in a cloak and zero other plot happens, but the mm. world building and the characters are so rich and detailed, you're you're still okay with it, even though it's kind of 15 to 20 pages of nothing. And that's kind of my experience with this chapter. I'm like, okay, you're setting the table. I see what's going on here. I kind of need a little plot with my character sometimes though. <laughs> uh I think that's that's accurate. Uh, that really, yeah. I when I was thinking about you composing your summary, I'm like, he's gonna write. They walked their horse into town, <laughs> um, right? Like then that. That's all that kind of literally happens. I, there's a lot more color to it, of course. Um, yes, I and you know, I think what I would credit some of that to is the promise of plot to come yeah. that there's there's the the rider um we get all of these ominous signs um i think it is sen Bui who 
Is that how's my close enough? I, I close have enough. no idea. Senbui is always how I said it in Bui. my head, but he is okay. not a character whose name has been said on the television show. So say it however you want. <laughs> so Senbui, uh, you know, re- references that there are a lot of storms, uh, that uh, there are stillborn lambs, these kind of ominous kind of uh, agricultural signs, and even reference it as far as, you know, if the crops don't start growing, uh, we're, we're not going to have a next winter or the winter after i think um it was very funny to read that because i was reading it um today sorry uh i was reading it uh this afternoon and and uh in boston this spring it has been uh kind of cool right we haven't yet had our real spring warm weather usually by this time we're we're in the 60s um and we've really been kind of settled in the 50s often the low 50s and that just felt exactly like the mood of this like yeah yeah, it's it's a time of rebirth and spring and and you know crops and all that um but we're not it's not right. And, you know, around here, there's been so much talk about not any kind of supernatural force, but like, are the, are the seasons slipping a little bit, kind of those types of climate change discussions. So, um, so it felt good to kind of have that, uh, that feeling here as well, that, that we are a little off. So. Yeah. And and I'm curious, obviously we have kind of these omens as far as, you know, the weather not looking right. We even have them going so far as someone like accuses, I think, Senbui of like fortune telling when he says there are no cranes on the roofs yet and there should always be cranes. Um, But I'm curious kind of like as Jordan is clearly doing this world building, saying all of the things that are that are off. Um, I know from the previous chapter in the prologue, you, there were just a few like phrases or words that you like zoomed in on and were like, that's the thing I want to find out later on. <laughs> was there anything in here in this chapter that you just like latched onto as like, this is the thing that I need to hear more about? Hmm. Uh, a lot of it that fell into that category for me would be things that had already come up or that resonated with what was in the prologues. Yeah. Um, so I just referenced the stillborn lambs, which again was kind of a throwaway thing, but I know from that first prologue that these people love their sheep and, yeah. and there are a lot of sheep references here as well. And again, if we're thinking of this as like this beautiful pastoral village uh, where their land is um, and, and they're kind of living this quiet life, um, so that would be one that immediately jumped out. Uh, I will reference a different Mike Sure show and say that when it, they referenced the youngsters rolling hoops, my mind went to Patton Oswald yep. rolling a hoop with a stick uh, in Parks and Recreation. And I believe he shouts huzzah as he yes. passes through frame. Um, and so I just, I, you know, that was one of those moments sitting alone on my porch. I just chuckled uh, because, because I had that image in my mind. Uh, so, but, but kind of more to, your your question the the moment that really stood out to me and it it works out well as a transition into some some key moments because it is an early one i was really curious about when tam gives rand uh what is apparently well-worn advice and he speaks of the flame and the void um and he says uh all the fear, all the hate, all the anger, which again, my mind goes to the dark side, Star Wars, Wars, yay, yay. Uh, He said, feed it all into a single flame and become one with the void. So he shorthands this in their conversation to um, feed this uh, or remember the flame in the void. Um, And that was really weird because, you know, I immediately went to like, 
men, we shut down our emotions, but it's, it's actually not that because it's not bottle up your emotions. It's burn them. And that's a really interesting metaphor for, for how you deal with the dark emotions you have. Right. Because, you know, that is both to, you know, destroy them, but also to like inflame them literally, uh, I guess, and, and kind of revel in them. But then the follow-up being once you're empty, just embrace that void um that's that's dark right like i can't tell my son that i mean the age is not equivalent but hey son just embrace the void next time you're feeling uh bad so uh yes i'm gonna offer that as my kind of most intriguing moment that stood out to me i think yeah and i think the flame in the void is a really cool example of something that robert jordan does a really good job of in this series which is that the, the world that we live in, the only thing that we know about it at this point, right, is that like it's the third age. They are in Emmons Field. And at some point there was a dragon and the breaking of the world. And one of the things that I think Robert Jordan does a really good job of to kind of show what the breaking of the world does is all of the like traditions and sayings and philosophies in this world. A lot of them feel like amalgamations of different things from our world kind of piecemeal Mm. put together. And I feel like the flame in the void to me reminds me of that. It feels a little bit like Eastern religion. It feels a little bit like Buddhist and meditation strategies, but it also like you're saying, has this very like potentially like very masculinist like burn your feelings have nothing on the inside be empty kind of interpretation and I think that's something that Jordan kind of plays around with a lot is the idea of like taking you know an idea from one philosophy in our world and combining it with another idea of something from our world and then twisting it just enough that it feels like a broken fantasy land instead of any of the real world kind of pieces that end up getting put together into that and and that's kind of how i think of the flame in the void right is it's it's like a philosophical mishmash that gets the point across but is mm-hmm. is somehow feels a little corrupted from how we would think of as like the ideal way of thinking through that concept Well, and that comment makes me remember, I don't think we actually talked about it when we got to the maps because we were a little long, Um, but it was very interesting to me that the map dropped in just a pure yin-yang, right? Like obviously light and dark had been uh, the balance of this. Uh, The other day I was, uh, I took a break from work. We have a supermarket that's like a 15 minute walk from campus. So I, I took a walk and I bought a giant package of black and white cookies. And I texted Tyler. I said, I'm doing show prep because I'm eating black and white cookies because coming out of those, those openings, that's really, it was like, it's all about the, the light and the dark, the black and the white. And, and then yep. seeing the, the yin yang just dropped in purely was, was an odd kind of bit of that. Um, I am assuming we shouldn't attribute that exactly to Robert Jordan, that he wouldn't necessarily have done the maps um, or anything like that. Um, But it is just- Actually, I I do actually just want to jump in for a second. It is worth noting that symbol that you're identifying as the yin-yang is actually slightly different from a yin-yang symbol because the yin-yang has, it's the same two white and black shapes. Um, But in a yin-yang symbol, there is a white dot in the middle of the black shape and a black dot in the middle of the white shape that is absent from the Robert Jordan version of the image. So once again, it's actually something that has a very clear corollary in our world, but feels just a little off or a little bit different in the way that it's presented in the book because of that, like the breaking of the world remade everything in kind of a weird mixed up way. Hmm. I'm 
flipping around in my book to make sure I'm I'm confirming this. I mean, I trust you, but just yeah. so I could say, yeah, I, indeed, you're you're absolutely correct, of course. Well, and then uh, flipping, I am also seeing some of these chapters with uh, these ravens, and at least in my book, the art is reminiscent of a yin yang with the circle, right, yeah. uh, with the light and the dark. Uh, so what you're saying is it's not a yin yang; it's a black and white cookie, and I was correct all That's along. That's absolutely uh, correct. <laughs> uh, uh, so the only other thing I'll say about the flame in the void is, uh, is, uh, Rand closes that by saying nobody else talked that way. And so this, again, this thinking about who is Tam yep. and I think I had mistakenly thought Tam told stories in the first prologue, but that was the mayor. No, Tam told did stories. tell stories in the first oh, prologue. Okay. So the okay. children all go to the mayor to ask him for a story. And the mayor okay. says, I don't know any stories like that. Tam, what about you? And so that's actually where we get our first, like, why is Tam so different moment? This being the yeah. first, if you don't have that Ravens prologue. Okay. Okay. Uh, so yes. What is it about Tam? How is he drawn into this larger world? Um, you know, the classic Joseph Campbell call to adventure um, is, you know, that the the world of the mystery seeps into ours, right? Yeah. Whatever we shove down into our subconscious slips out. Um, and here we have, again, these kind of mysterious vapors coming from the beyond. And we're going to see what this is about. Um that's that's very cool to me. Uh, I would love to hear you talk a little bit. I don't want to skip that opening yeah. paragraph, which uh, was beautiful and really felt to me uh, more than anything like Tale of Two Cities, right? Uh, yeah. uh, and that kind of pontificating opening. Uh, so talk to me. Uh, yeah. What what should we be noticing or what just do you love about that opening? Um, well, first off, it's just I find it brilliant and iconic right it's it's a really can it's a really concise piece of world building that tells you a little bit about like what is the fundamental like nature or philosophy of the world we're about to get into in you know three sentences or so right the you know we learn in this opening paragraph there is a wheel of time it actually i'm gonna interrupt you yeah because if this were class I would definitely make some bored undergraduate <laughs> read it uh, yeah. because we're we're read along. So presumably our audience has read it, but let me let me just take a pass at it as the novice, which will probably butcher some sentences. Uh, and then I think you should pick it apart. But let's put it fresh in everybody's mind. Yeah. Uh, the wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age called the third age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There were, are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time, but it was a beginning. Oh, hold the applause. Hold the, well, you, you put the applause in in post and then I'll, I'll shush <laughs> the applause. Okay. So, so hit us again. Okay. So uh, beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me why it's iconic though. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, just the amount of information we're given in this and the amount of speculation we can do on it, I think is really impressive, right? There is a wheel of time. It turns in a circular manner. So ages that have come will come again. That in and of itself really is giving us kind of the framing of how this world thinks about history and how it thinks about, you know, to some degree, like 
how does time and magic and the world work in this world? Um, we learn that the passing of this time is on a massive scale, that we're not just hearing stories that happen once every hundred years or once every thousand years. There's time for legends to become myth and even that gets forgotten. And then to me, the most interesting little piece of world building here, uh, it's called the third age. That's just useful for us contextualizing things, especially because we've had quotations that are cited as being from the fourth age in the prologue. So that gives us a little something interesting to pick apart there. But then to me, the fascinating thing that this puts in your head is it refers to this as an age yet to come, an age long pass. And I think you can very reasonably interpret that as Robert Jordan telling you this story is in our world, either thousands of years to come and or thousands of years behind. And that ability to say it is the same place just a long time from now and a long time ago is how Robert Jordan, I think, is able to play so neatly with it's the yin yang, but it's not quite the yin yang because it's been X number of years and who knows how long that is. Hmm. Uh, I I think my favorite moment is, is what you referenced, legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten. Um, there is a way in which, you know, just the world as, as it is makes us feel like everything we come up with is eternal, right? And yeah. it will always. And um, to set this so clearly in a world that is going to forget um, yeah. is important. And I think that to me links up with what you're saying about, you know, um, that it that's how it can come around again right yeah. um you know whatever odd cl old cliches you want to throw at it but the idea that because we've forgotten it's going to come back around again and, and yeah. it'll, it'll happen again um yeah i mean that certainly feels like robert jordan's version of long ago in a galaxy far far away yeah um and it also feels to me uh you know i never associated um the prologue with Lord of the Rings, the book, but Lord of the Rings, the film has this phenomenal prologue where yeah. you're just like, oh, here's 2000 years of history, like uh, get back to it. Um, and it, it is that kind of deep time that gives you a sense of scale and a part of this. Um, I don't think it, I didn't bump on this as like, here are clues. This yeah. is more like atmosphere. This is more mood. Yeah setting some vibes at the beginning of, um, you know, the, the, the story. And I will say, I am just a very analytical person. When you say vibes and I say clues, I think we mean exactly the same thing. <laughs> I'm just always solving books. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I, I had one more thing I wanted to mention about this chapter before we jump over to chapter two. I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to bring oh. up. I have so many notes still to go, so get ready. But uh, no, what's yours? <laughs> uh, well, I actually had something at the end of the chapter. So why don't we go through a couple of other things you wanted to chat about? Sure. So uh, I'll continue the theme of Lord of the Rings vibes and just say this felt to me the par portion where the hobbits are approaching Bree. Yeah. It's very, very reminiscent of that, which was interesting because when we were talking about the prologue as the Shire, you were like, let's skip the Shire. It's like, oh, he skipped the Shire. <laughs> he's, he's, he's approaching Bree to, to get going. Uh, as a part of that. Um, and we did already talk about ominous signs. So um, one of the things I loved about this is the unfurling of the map. Um, and maybe yeah. this is the RPG player in me that I was interested to see this kind of slowly unfurling. Um, so 
let me see if I have it correct. Okay. And then you correct whatever is not correct. Um, I honestly didn't find the map at the beginning of this chapter that helpful. Um, maybe it was partially the placement of it. I'm like, I, I don't know what I'm looking at yet. Yeah. Okay. So we are in the region of the two rivers. This yeah. is the kind of whole area is, is that, that region. Um, and this is of course, where we were in the first prologue in Ravens. Yeah. And then, um, Within that, the primary village is Emmons Field, which is again where the festival was happening in the prologue, and obviously a lot of these characters were all all there as a part of it. Um, what struck me then is uh, that is just one of multiple villages mentioned. Yep. There is also something hill, Dune Hill, something something hill. Uh, there, uh, and then the other one is something fairy. Right. So, uh, yes. Yeah, so there is Devon Ride, Watch Hill, and Terry Ferry. Yeah. Okay. So, three other villages that are all in the area. Now, Tam and his father, uh, Rand sorry, and Tam, his father, Tam, Rand yeah. and his father, Tam, they are from the Westwood, uh, which is just a like forest away from the village. Right. Exactly. But they're remote enough that they don't come into town all the time. And there was a lot made of the fact, like, oh, like he's finally back. We can talk to him again and we can see what he's seen. So he's also far enough out that he's experiencing more of these ominous signs and has uh, more information uh, to give to the town. And, and it isn't just like they pop into town all the time. Um, and this farm they have is kind of a hot property. It's, it's big and uh, all the ladies want to uh, come be the mistress on the farm. It sounds like uh, primarily being uh, set up by married women to, to go marry them. So, uh, and so is that roughly the lay of land? What, what corrections or what am I not remembering that is important? No, that's more or less accurate. I mean, I would kind of think of the Westwood in the same way that I would think of like like Worcester Mass in Boston. Like it's just far enough out that you can come to the city whenever you want to, but you're not going to be in once a week. It's it's a hall, right? And so okay. I that, that's you know, I think that's the way to think of of the Westwood. Is it's clearly a part of Emmons Field in the same way that suburbs are a part of any major city, but it's far enough out that you're not going to be interacting with like downtown city folks on a day to day or even a week to week basis. And, you know, I think you're exactly right. And I, I love the there's a line in there when Tam is, you know, when Rand is thinking about Tam being set up by all of these women, where it, it's something like, there are people who have farms in the Westwood. It's kind of only the crazy people, but these women want to marry Tam anyways, right? That's not exactly the way it's phrased, but it's like, it's such a good farm. He's such a good guy. He clearly loved his wife. Like they, they have the nicest place in the worst part of town. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And yeah, I mean, he seems respected and because he's a widower, then yeah. Yeah, let's let's get him back on the market, right? Exactly. Um, okay, and then I just want to pass through. Uh, it doesn't need to be a long conversation. Um, the the wisdom is a woman named Nineveh. 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 Nineveh is the worst pronunciation of that name, but it's the one Robert Jordan went with. Okay, so Nineveh um, and is a. I'm understanding wisdom is a position yep. chosen by the women's count, uh, women's circle, excuse Correct. me. And so they choose whoever they want to be a wisdom. Yep. The men folk seem 
really weirded out by this particular choice and that she is uh too young for this position and then there's also hints that she's uh she's got a bit of a temper right yeah. uh so yeah, has been known to thump people with her stick i think uh again just the right balance for me that you gave me enough that i can map out oh, okay there's the the town uh group uh the, the town village council, council. The village council and the the women's circle they are separate they are not equal um and it does seem like the matriarchy holds a little bit more of the power a lot of the men are afraid of the women in these in these uh sections um but at the same time they um i don't know it it seems like the men do still hold the political power right uh, so and, and, and that's, this, that's accurate. And I think it kind of sums up the way Robert Jordan is going to be thinking about gender politics, right? It's a very like 90s. It's still very essentialized. It's still men have men's roles and women have women's roles. It's, it's not as progressive as I think now in the 2020s where like we'd love to be in some ways. But at the same time, Robert Jordan very clearly has things that he wants to say about gender dynamics. And I think you're identifying exactly how he does that, right? He takes dynamics that we know exist in the real world and he changes the emphasis or changes the placement of power a little bit you're exactly right to identify very early on it seems like the women's circle gets involved with village council business but the village council is afraid to get involved with women's circle business that's the kind of tension that i think jordan is kind of intentionally trying to build in his world hmm Excellent. Okay. I'm glad I roughly had that correctly then. And and uh, just again, because we're in these early chapters, the, this will fade away as a podcast feature, but it's all very interesting to me, right? Like, uh, again, he, he has a talent for giving me enough and I can build from that and start to be curious about it. Um, I'm sure that uh, Nynaeve uh, will be very prominent. And um, I, I, in my mind, I guess I, when we were talking about it in the prologues, I said, I know nothing about the show, but then I realized I know Rosamund Pike is in it. And so now I'm, now I'm hunting for Rosamund Pike. I'm like, is it naive or is it, uh, uh, Egg, Egwene, 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 uh, don't, don't tell me yet. We'll, I'll, I'll okay. figure it out as we go forward. But that was Got where it. my mind went. I'm like, oh, right. Like who's, who's gone girl in this? Uh, <laughs> I don't even think you could necessarily call her gone girl, but um, okay. Uh, and then the last thing I'll bring up from the chapter, and then I want to hear your last thing. I just uh, really liked the moment where they're, so Rand and Matt have both seen the the dark man, the dark rider. Mm -hmm. um, and I really uh, marked down to, to read again, uh, because we should read more, um, because I thought it was so interesting when they're trying to piece out who it is. And they do a lot of what we talked about in the prologue of just listing off cool things. So Rand took a deep breath as much to remind himself as for any other reason. He said by rote, the dark one and all of the forsaken are bound in Sheol Gol, beyond the great blight, bound by the creator at the moment of creation, bound until the end of time. The hand of the creator shelters the world and the light shines on us all. He drew another breath and went on. Besides, if he was free, what would the shepherd of the night be doing in the two rivers watching farm boys? Shepherd of the night. 
damn. Uh, I, I want that to be on my business card, I think. Um, I think but... you got to be really into sheep to think that the greatest <laughs> evil in the world would spend its time shepherding. Yeah, yeah. Totally cool. Another great moment for me. This is also, they, they said maybe he's the dragon, maybe he's just the dark one himself. Um, so um, the way that's presented, though, Rand to me is not saying the mythology that thrives on him. This isn't a kid who loves stories and myth, right? This isn't Frodo looking at Uncle Bilbo and being in awe. You met trolls and all that. It felt like the kid who doesn't believe anymore, but still has all his Sunday school in him. Right. Like I, I have all this knowledge. Yes. Here are the names of the 12 disciples because a nun made me memorize them and wrapped me on my knuckles until I uh, could uh, recite them. But I don't really believe in this stuff anymore. Um, And particularly with his skepticism, that just became a full circle moment to me because it starts with him believing in something he couldn't see or prove and now he's, you know, he's the, the Han Solo move. He's, he's cynical. He's like, I, I don't belong to that world. That world is, is fake, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm interested to see where that goes. Did I hit upon what you wanted to talk about? Uh, you it? hit upon what I wanted to talk about and we're off by about like two sentences, right? Ooh, so, interesting, okay. So Matt and Rand have this moment where they both agree. They've seen the the rider in black. They don't know what's going on. And you're exactly right. Rand, you know, he, it almost, I, I think the way this is referred to sometimes this, you know, the paragraph you read, it sometimes referred to as the catechism when people are talking mm-hmm. about this series. Mm-hmm. Yep. It seems to be like the memorized by rote, the same way you might like say a Hail Mary to yourself if you're a religious person and trying to settle yourself. That's exactly what Rand does. And then- after that moment, after he's kind of steadied himself, reassured himself, Matt says, we need to tell someone. And Rand's immediate response is, we've both told them, why would they listen to both of us if they haven't listened to either one of us individually? And mm-hmm. that, I think, is a really, it, it, it's an important moment for these characters because, like, you're someone who studies literature, you know this, books wouldn't exist if characters talked to each other clearly at all times, (laughs) right? Plot would fall apart. And so I think to me, this is one of the first moments in in any series we know difficult communication is going to become really important. Robert Jordan puts a really big emphasis on what is and isn't said. And so when you get a character telling someone, we can't tell anyone about this, my like spidey senses immediately start to go off every single time. Mm. Yeah. Intriguing stuff. All right. All right. That really was more than I suspected we'd have to talk about that chapter. So uh, yeah, I think that again speaks to the the quality of what's here. Um, anything that really bothered you, just so we don't sound all Pollyanna shill, we are not paid by the Jordan estate uh, or Amazon uh, to get this. Um, I mean, the one thing I will say is from my perspective, and I know from some fans' perspective, Rand is kind of the boring guy to be in his head. I think Robert Jordan does a lot of really brilliant things in terms of how he manages the the third person limited and what information is being given to you and what information is being filtered through a character's brain. And Rand as kind of the generic blank protagonist type to me, he's the person whose head I'm least excited to be in when it comes to the third person limited. And so for me, that that's, that's the thing that holds back this chapter is just, I'm not seeing some of the things that later on, I feel like Robert Jordan does so well. 
I don't disagree with that. I think it felt very uh, Thor before he got interesting in the yeah. Marvel movies. Just kind of, hey, I'm a guy. Uh, yep, I can do stuff. So yeah, I agree with that. All right, then I think we should uh, move on. So yes. uh, all right, chapter two of book one of Robert Jordan's The Eye of the World, book one of the Wheel of Time saga uh, called Strangers. Tyler, if you could hit us with your incredibly long, detailed summary of what is just 13 pages, I think, in my edition, a very <laughs> short kind of thin chapter. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, it's a relatively quick chapter, right? In Strangers, we see a number of the members of the Village Council gathered up at the inn, clearly discussing something carefully. Rand is interested, but keeps getting pulled away, first by his friend Matt and needing to move all of the cider into the basement, and then in discussions with Uin Fingar, then by a raven who, shockingly, upon having th stones thrown at it, dodges out of the way rather than flying away. And finally, the most interesting and most kind of shocking of the distractions is the strangers in town. We meet two new characters, Moraine and Lan. Each of them are given pretty detailed descriptions. They have an interaction with Rand and Matt and Ewan. And most notably, Moraine tells them that she wants Matt and Rand specifically to be doing some help for them around town and gives each of them what is very clearly a very valuable silver coin and tells them to keep it as a memento. And they clearly decide to do so rather than spending it and that's pretty much strangers and once again as always you're the first timer you get the first crack at what's happening thoughts on this very character driven chapter yeah um you know i think the big impression i left with is just okay is this the person who seems sketchy who ends up being really good and really important or is this the person who feels good feels kindly who's actually up to no good and nefarious um and i think that i could read this chapter either way means it's kind of uh only what you have with you right like what do you take in when you deal with strangers so uh my initial impression i feel like uh these two are a force for good um there's a lot of emphasis on them being beautiful and of the light or yep. seemingly of the light and so that makes me think i'm wrong because i think it'll be a switch and it'll be somebody who you know turns into a crone or something uh but um i found it engaging and the the particular moment of the coins uh is what i'm most interested here uh so those again pretty thin pretty short uh the food sounded awesome some crusty yep. bread some honey cakes gotta find my wheel of time cookbook which i'm sure somebody has i'm made. sure it exists yeah uh so uh yeah what were your initial impressions yeah, I mean, I think this is a fun chapter, right? The And you, you've already alluded to the names of the next two chapters, the Gleeman, the Peddler. It, it's not surprising that these early chapters are very much kind of laying out a lot of the cast of characters very early on. And this, I think, does a really good job of it, right? We learn a lot about Matt in this chapter that we wouldn't have known before. Anytime you hear about Matt pulling pranks, I always laugh because something weird is going to go on. Um, and then we also just get 
what I think are two really great quick character descriptions that, that work really well. Um, you know, we hear a lot about Moraine and how she's perceived and how she makes people feel awkward, even though, you know, she's just standing there being herself. And then I love, there was just a line where it talked about the only way to describe land moving was like a wolf. And that just like jumped out to me as like, Oh, that I, I can see that it's I, that to me is what this, this chapter does is I walk away from it feeling, feeling like I, I know pretty well two characters who were unknown to me at the beginning of it. Yeah, and, you know, again, to continue my Lord of the Rings comparison, they felt like elves, right? Uh, because they were more beautiful and, and you know, in early portions of Lord of the Rings, there are elves traveling to uh, the Grey Havens? Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, yeah, but they're going across the Shire to leave uh, Middle-earth for, for the West. Um, and so it felt very much like that. Um, I was really curious about what they said there, or I should say what she said she was there for, which yes. is that she has experienced stories and she's trying to go find where stories happened, right? Right. To learn more about the places. It wasn't necessarily to collect stories as I understood it. It's it's to experience where they are. Um, you know, and, and again, uh, we alluded to, we're, we live here in Boston um, and just outside of town is Concord, which is just that kind of literary field trip zone uh where people are like want to go see where louisa may alcott lived with her sisters that became little women and want to go sit at walden pond and see where thoreau sat and and on and on and on because so many literary uh luminaries passed through that town um and so i think it felt a little bit like people I see there, right? If I go walk through Concord, I, I get those those people who really just want to take a picture of, of Louisa May Alcott's house or, or where Nathaniel Hawthorne sat. Um, the So that was interesting to me. And uh, again, I'm hoping these are kind of central characters. It felt like these were, were big characters. And to put somebody who's kind of a scholar and kind of a book nerd at the center of that felt cool to me. Um, the coins were perhaps the most interesting bit to me, as I said, um, just to skip almost directly to the ending. Yeah. But, you know, the hiring of assistants was very vague. I might have some jobs. I might need some favors. And then she says to keep them as mementos. And uh, I think it's, uh, is it matter? Aween is immediately like, this is so much money. I could buy a horse but I should keep it forever. Like yep. it felt like the coins were enchanted to reinforce that message or she had, had cast a spell as she said it with the power of suggestion or something so that they all are experienced more money than ever before. Uh, it, it was reminiscent uh, again in, in our other life, Tyler is my DM. And there was a time I think I rolled into a town. I'm like, let's just flip some gold coins to everybody. And you were like, that is so much money for this town. <laughs> like you are, everybody just thinks you're an idiot because you're giving away huge amounts of money for no apparent reason. And so it felt a little like that, like it was meant to wow and flash, you know, how important she is, uh, but that it also felt just like a little bit sinister. Again, I think I land on the place where I think um, Moraine is maybe up, maybe has some questionable means but is actually doing good or is actually a force for good uh that's my prediction set the recording we can uh play that when i made a fool later 
Uh, as speaking of predictions that are made a fool, I actually want to come back very quickly to a prediction you made in our very original introduction episode. Uh, okay. When when you said you expected lots and lots of detailed descriptions of food. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, we will get some of that. But this <laughs> chapter is our introduction to Robert Jordan's version of George R.R. R. Martin's descriptions of food, which is descriptions of clothing. We get a solid uh, yeah. like page and a half of what Moraine and Lan are wearing. That is the new eel pie. If you're going to be reading the Wheel of Time, get ready to hear a lot about clothes. And and they the characters could read the clothes, as I recall, too, right? Like yeah. they knew uh, what marked them as not in. Uh, was it a, a warder? Something along those lines. Yes, uh, I think yeah. Uwen says like I think Lan is a warder, and no one quite knows what to make of that. But that, that's yeah. at least one inference people are drawing. Yeah. Okay. Um. That that's cool. That's interesting to me as well. Um. And I'm. I I will say personally, Lan didn't stand out. Uh, Lan, excuse me, yes. didn't stand out as much to me as Moraine did. Felt like uh kind of also there. Uh, because he doesn't really have the conversation. He just comes up at the end. Um. I, I am thinking these are fully separate from the Dark Rider. I think the Dark Rider is, is separate from these. There was kind of that question early in the chapter, and could yep. they be, oh, now I'm getting it. Yes, because then there's endless discussion about the different cloaks. What color was his cloak? Oh, yep. well, the the Gleeman's cloak was more patches than than this, and, and then the color. So, yes, okay, getting it. Cool. Uh, yeah, um, I think... The only other note I have here is the hushed town business was of note that the more and more town council members who kept village council kept showing up. Um, it It's funny because, uh, you know, I have no reason to think they're malevolent, but it reminded me of, you know, during um, uh, Jim Crow South, there were always a, a village council yep. that you know, said they were out for the good protection of all citizens, but actually were deeply racist and problematic. So I think I had some skepticism towards the village council. That was probably just my own baggage coming into it. Um, but it, it made me laugh, particularly, um, I don't know if you remember, oh gosh, uh, five, 10 years ago, they found a sequel to uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, right? yeah. And one of the things that had happened is everybody's beloved, good white guy, Atticus Finch, was one of these highly problematic town council members that, um, again, did incredibly racist things in the name of protecting the town, which right. was the justification. So when yeah. I hear a bunch of dudes, hushed tones, yeah, trying to protect the village, I immediately like, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know about this. Uh, so, you know, thinking of Robert Jordan writing this in the 90s, that's probably not a piece of history that's very prominent in his mind. But where you've promised me he's playing with gender roles and rethinking them a bit, eh, it's not impossible. Something good could be coming of this. And, and you actually picked out exactly what I wanted to talk about, which is mm. the fact that I feel like Robert Jordan, like I was saying before, what he does really well is he puts you in characters' heads. And going back and reading this now, I had never noticed how interested Rand is in the politics. It would be very mm. easy for Robert Jordan to have described 
there are like eight dudes with their heads in the corner over there just talking about something. But Rand is constantly thinking, what can I do to get in on this? Should I stay and listen? He's, you know, I think Matt at one point like kicks him to get him away from the meeting because he refused to walk away on his own. That's, you know, earlier I had mentioned something I had never seen before in the reread, Rand's interest in the politics that, you know, you picked up on. I had never noticed before. It's it's interesting that it's not just there. It's there and and Rand seems to really be paying attention to it. And and that fits with something that we see also where the the mayor is talking to Rand and Tam and says, "Rand, you'll probably be on the village council after Tam." It's very clear Tam has been preparing him for that. He's thinking mm-hmm. through village politics and he's the one who keeps asking like when Moraine shows up, he's the one who asks, "Why are you here?" All the other kids just take it as a grant uh, you take it for granted that she showed up and then the question is, "What are you going to do here?" Rand's the only one can digging into that you know motivation and you know that stuck out to me I had never thought of Rand as an especially like political or thoughtful figure before he is kind of like bland white guy character and it's interesting that someone who I I think we're kind of given to infer that Rand is like 17 or 18 ish Mm. in these chapters it seems right it's an uncommon thing for someone of that age to be really into village politics all right bear me out on this one complicated politics we don't entirely understand kind of generic white guy ominous kind of some kind of menace some kind of phantom menace it's all the phantom menace yeah we're there we solved it i'm i'm doing the blackjack dealer uh holding up my hands i'm done uh we've solved uh the the uh eye of the world uh okay i mean yeah. And again, talking through these with you it has helped me appreciate them a little bit more, has helped me think through there's a little more going on here. Um, but I'm still going to say I, I'm walking away from uh, these last two chapters uh, again, just kind of feeling the cozy tavern, right? Yeah. Bars suck now. I want a cozy tavern. I want a, a fireplace the size they're talking about. I want some honey cakes. Uh, and I want, you know, uh, hushed tones around the room. So uh, some golden ale or brandy, as they say. So um, it's it was great to spend a little time in there. My assumption is that we're going to be spending more time there. Tell me about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it turns out that when your series of books is 15 books long, you can spend a while in one place and it's still considered the beginning of book one. So uh, strap in a little bit if you're already tired of the two rivers. Awesome. Okay. Anything else? I, I'm feeling satisfied. Yeah, I think the only other note that I had is at the very end of the chapter, I think the final sentence of the chapter is it was going to be the best Beltine ever. And since Mm -hmm. we are people who understand how dramatic irony works, I think we just (laughs) need to acknowledge the Ron Howard narrator voice that would come in afterwards and be like, it was not the best Beltine ever. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and we haven't talked too much about Beltine, but, you know, anytime you have a festival with all the single ladies, uh, dancing around a maypole uh we're we're in for some interesting things uh i actually uh this is so not important but i used to live across uh the street from a house where a coven met 
regularly and they always did a maypole in the spring and i would just be sitting in my living room probably reading some boring fantasy book and i would just hear like ominous singing and then look out and there were just you know witches uh not using that in any uh, anything other than literal uh singing and chanting and wrapping ribbons around a maypole which is a very interesting thing and then uh you enlightened me to midsummer which just changed everything even further so uh so yeah let's go to belltide and see if we get a little midsummer uh in in our our story here just emotionally devastating that's that's what we're going for in the next couple (laughs) chapters that sounds about right excellent well i think this wraps up everything that we had to say about chapters one and two um and I'm really excited to get a chance to, you know, meet a few new characters. As we said, I think the next time we're going to be meeting, we'll be covering a couple of chapters. Uh, The first one is we'll be talking about the peddler. And then second, we'll be talking about the Gleeman. So lots of new characters to meet, lots of new exciting adventures in the two rivers. And we look forward to having you again through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.